0: Before I begin, let's pray. Father, you are both merciful and mighty. If you were only merciful, we might know that you feel sorry for us, but we couldn't run to you for help. And if all you were... Was might, we would be too afraid to run to you for help. But you are merciful and mighty. And so we can approach you with confidence through Jesus. To any scared soul who clings to Jesus Christ, you will never cast them away. Oh, thank you. Would you help us this morning love the bride? that your son has purchased for himself, redeemed for himself out of her slavery and sin. Help us love the church as Jesus does. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to convince you this morning that a major calling from your life in Christ, a major calling from Jesus on your life is to invest in your local church. Now, I don't want to convince you of that because I think you're not doing it, okay? Some people, whenever a pastor brings up something, it, this happens a lot, actually. Luke can testify anytime really. We as pastors call people, their first, their first response is, what did I do? I didn't do anything wrong. That's not how we're coming at this. We're not police officers saying, hey, you guys don't care about the church. Now it's time to preach a sermon on the church. That's not what we're doing. We're coming to this as pastors. We want to see you excel in what Jesus Christ has for you. So that's why this morning we're talking about the church. Now, that's going to fill out banner number two. We've been talking about the gospel in community. We're going to talk about the local church as our community. And next week, we're going to talk about how this gospel The good news is for all the peoples. That's how Luke's going to finish out the series, Lord willing, next week. Last week we saw Jesus Christ saves us. He does it by living a good life for us. Dying to be punished for us. So that his righteous life, God would look at us and count it to us. That's good news. And it's for anyone who would believe and God has a plan so so he forgives us but he has a plan to make us more and more like himself on the inside he has a plan to keep you trusting him till the end not just one time if you trust him really for the first time he's going to keep you trusting until the day you die and he has a plan to do that he created an institution an organization for you and all the nations to be discipled in, and it's the local church. Just think about the Great Commission, okay? You know what the Great Commission is? It's the, it's the last thing Jesus says before he takes off into heaven, as it were, before he ascends. He speaks to his disciples. You remember what he says? He says, go. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Okay? And and what do the apostles do? You just flip over to the book of Acts, and it tells you what the apostles did in obedience to what Jesus said. What do they do? They go around preaching the good news that we talked about last week so that people come to Christ— People get baptized, that's what Jesus told them to do. And then, how do they teach those people to observe all that Jesus commanded? How do they do it? They started local churches. I should give you pause. That that is how the apostles thought they were obeying what Jesus commanded them in the Great Commission. They started gatherings that met weekly, weekly, that took the Lord's Supper together, that had pastors, elders overseeing them, that were committed to one another, to correct one another, to pray, to sing. So the apostles understood the way you fulfill the Great Commission is through the local church. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna make a quick case as to why Christians should be members of local churches. Okay, That's the first thing we're going to do. I'm to just make a brief case as to why all Christians should be members of local churches. And what I mean by that is that God's design for you is that you would be a member, you would belong to a church in such a way that the other people know that you're a member. You know who the other people are who are members, and your pastors know who you are. That's what I mean. So I'm going to make that case. That's the first thing we're going to do quickly. And then we're going to think about okay, what should the significance of the local church be in our lives? So if if God wants us in local churches, how significant should our investment in the local church be? And then we're going to close with some application. So that's where we're headed. Let's start with a quick case as to why Christians should be members of local churches. Now, I have a, a little a little warning My quick case is about half of the sermon. So don't panic if you're like, this is not quick. The reason I say it's quick is because I have preached whole sermons on this before. This is not the entire case as to why Christian disciples of Jesus should be in local churches. This is just going to be two observations with two texts after each observation to help you see, yeah, I think the New Testament is teaching that all Christians should be part of local churches. That's all we're going to do. So here we go. You should be a member of a local church in such a way that you know who the other members are, they know who you are, and the pastors, the elders know that you're a member. So two big observations from the New Testament with two texts after each. Okay, here we go. Here's observation number one for the New Testament as to why I think Christians should all be a part of a church. Observation one, the apostles assume that when a church gathers, you can know whether the whole church is there or not. So follow me here. This is 1 Corinthians 14. Paul is explaining to the church how they should exercise spiritual gifts when they're together. And listen to what he says. If therefore, this is 1 Corinthians 14, 23, if you want to look it up or write it down. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and an outsider or unbeliever enters, will they not say that you are out of your minds that's just a, an amazing text on its own isn't it saying if everybody in here starts talking in tongues somebody from the outside comes in there and go what is wrong with these weirdos okay so that's what that text is about i want to make a side point from this text notice in paul's mind the church is a specified group of people who can all get together And you can know that everyone who belongs is there. Do you notice that? He says, when the whole church is gathered, you can know that everybody who should be there is there, and you can also know when an outsider is there. That's very interesting, isn't it? You can't talk like that for a Bible study, can you? If you've had a Bible study, anybody comes. So one week, four people show up. Next week, 12 people show up. The following week, nine people show up. It's always different people. You could never say the whole Bible study gathered together. The only way you could say that is if there are six members of the Bible study and all six of them showed up. That's the only way you could say the whole Bible study showed up. And Paul's doing the same thing here. He's saying when the whole church is together, you could actually know when that happens and you can know who outsiders are. That can't happen without some sort of membership in a local church. These people are part of the church. These people are not. We can know when we're all together. Okay, one more text. 1 Corinthians 5. Now, this is a passage about church discipline. So someone's in serious sin. He has taken his mother-in-law as his wife. And he's a member of the church. Listen to what Paul says. This is verse 4. I'm going to read 4 and 5, and then I'm going to skip down to verses 12 and 13. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, so that means when you're all together, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now jump down to verse 12. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil. That means remove the evil person from among you. Now again, just stop and think. The church can assemble. They can all get together. And they can also kick someone out. That can only happen if your church has some idea of who belongs right? I mean, if it's just a mass of people flowing in and out, you don't know who anyone is, what, do you mean, what does it mean to kick someone out? And what would it mean for you to assemble all together? This can only happen if your church has an idea of who belongs. It's not just everyone who claims to be a Christian. So, the apostles assumed. And when I say assumed, I mean, they write, when they're writing the New Testament, they think, every Christian knows this. I don't have to explain it. Every Christian knows that they should be a part of a specific church that gathers regularly where they can know they're a part of that specific church and the other people know they're a part of that specific church. So that's observation one. Here's observation number two. The New Testament expects that every Christian would be accountable to specific elders. So it's two texts again. My observation is this. The New Testament expects that every one of us would be accountable to specific leadership, pastors. Listen to Acts 14, verse 23. Paul and Barnabas, they've been traveling around, preaching the gospel, starting churches. Acts 14, 21 starts by saying, When they had preached the gospel to Derbe, that's the city, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, and to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So, after Paul and Barnabas share the gospel, then they go back to the places where they shared the gospel and they make sure that every church has elders and pastors. That's what they're concerned with. Okay, do all the churches have elders and pastors? Every specific church has its own specific elders. Now, Hebrews 13, verse 17. The author of Hebrews says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Can you obey this verse? If you're a Christian, you're responsible to obey this verse. What is this verse telling you to do? This verse is telling you to obey your leaders. Now, If you aren't committed to a particular set of leaders, elders, pastors, you can't obey this verse. You got that? Jesus someday is going to say, Did you obey Hebrews 13, 17? If you don't know who your leaders are, then the answer would have to be, No, I didn't obey my leaders. I'm arguing, what I'm arguing with this text, is the only way you can obey this verse is if you know who your leaders are, they know who you are, and you're both committed to each other. That's why the apostles went back through every city and appointed pastors for every church. The way you know who your leaders are, the way they know who you are, is if you are committed to a particular local church and particular pastors. So people who bounce around from Bible study to small group, they come to one worship gathering, they go to a different worship gathering, they can't obey this verse. They don't know who their spiritual leaders are, and therefore they can't obey them. So these two observations from the New Testament come together, okay? Observation one, when a church gathers together, you can know whether the whole church is there or not. Observation two, you should be accountable to specific elders. That can only happen if you belong to a specific church in such a way that they know who you are, you know who they are, and the elders know who you are as well. That's the case we're making. Now, you might think "Ah, that's too formal. I just want to be a Christian, I don't want to be a part of an institution institutions stink, organizations stink. I want the freedom to be able to go to any worship gathering, any Bible study I want to. You have tons of freedom. You have tons of freedom. But if you aren't committed to a particular group of people and a particular group of elders, you are missing out on what Jesus wants for your joy, to build you up as disciples. This is his plan for you. This is not the plan of some group of leaders who conspired together to get more power this is the plan of jesus christ for the good of his church it's his discipleship model for the nations i mean that's how these three banners kind of fit together if you want to you guys just pick out things that you liked we like the gospel we like community we like the nations tagline they flow don't they The gospel must be preached in order to make a new people. And that new people is discipled through the local church. And that message and that people is not restricted to one nation or ethnicity, is it? It's for all the peoples of the earth. And that's what we will see next week. The case we've tried to make so far is that Jesus and the apostles expect you and every Christian to belong to a specific local church with specific leaders. Now, here's the second point. We're going to reflect on the significance then of the local church in your own life. Okay? So, yeah, you say the, the apostles expect us to be a part of churches. So what? What? well, I'm going to argue that you should consider your involvement in your local church as a major priority. I'm not going to tell you how major. The Bible doesn't do that. It doesn't organize your schedule for you, but I'm going to argue it's a big priority. Jesus loves his bride, the church. He loves the people he died for. He really does. If you want to get, okay, what is is Jesus like? What is he like? What kind of things does he love? You know what you're going to find there? You're going to find at the very center, Jesus loves the glory of God, and right squished up with it is the church. He loves the church. Listen to what Ephesians 5 says about Jesus' desire for us. Paul's talking to husbands, but he uses Jesus' as a picture of how husbands should relate to their wives, listen to what he says. This is Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He laid down his life for his bride so that he might sanctify her. That means make her holy having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Jesus loves us. That's what Paul's getting after. And what does he do in his love for us? Well, he dies for us. He dies. He, he dies so that our sins could be forgiven. We might have his righteousness counted to us. He's transforming us, this text says. He's washing us. He's making us holy and splendid. That's what Jesus is doing in his cosmic love for the church. What does Jesus do when he loves someone? He makes them holy and splendid. How does he do it? Well, he dies on the cross to pay for our forgiveness and to pay for all the power needed to change us. But then how does he change us? This book tells us how he does it. One chapter before, which Marnie read at the beginning. Ephesians 4, 13 through 16. Well, it's 11 through 16. I'll summarize Paul says, Jesus has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints. So that doesn't mean St. Mary, St. Joseph. It means all Christians. Jesus gives apostles, pastors, evangelists, teachers, to equip all Christians to do the work of ministry which is building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine so he's saying I don't want you to be Like kids, when false teaching comes, it just blows you over. You go with it. Someone says a lie, something that's not true. You don't know any better. You just follow after it. He's saying, no, no, no. I want you to grow up in your knowledge of Christ and the truth. Rather, this is verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay. Jesus loves his church. That's what we saw in Ephesians 5. He wants to make you holy. He forgives you. He wants to transform you. He wants you to share his happy life. That's what he's going to do for you. How does he do it? He doesn't just zap you. I think sometimes we wish he would, right? Boom, holy, boom, holy, boom, holy. That's not how it works. How does he do it? His plan for how it happens is when the members, all of them, build up the other members. That's what Ephesians 4 is saying, which means your care for the local church is really significant. Caring for the members of your church. The people that Jesus has intentionally put in your life. It's not a little thing that you should think about doing if you have any time left over. Now, you and I have lots of callings. Some of us have talked about this before. We have lots of callings. Usually we would say, we usually think of our life as having one calling I'm called to preach. I'm a preacher, that's my calling. But we have lots of callings. If you're a husband or wife, you have a calling to be a faithful spouse, to care for your husband or wife. That's a calling that Jesus wants you to do. If you're a parent, you are called to love your kids, disciple them, train them to know Jesus, help them grow. If you're an employee, you have a calling to work hard for the Lord. God may have led you to a particular kind of ministry, so to a specific group of people or to a certain kind of good work, that's a calling as well. So we have lots of callings. That's the point I'm making. Lots of things that Jesus wants us to do. Part of life is figuring out how to be faithful to Jesus with all of the different things he's called you to, without neglecting other things he's called you to. You got that? I mean, that's, a, that's a tricky part of life, isn't it? The Bible is not going to spell it out for you how you ought to make your priorities and organize your time and your life. A significant part of life is figuring out, okay, how do I be faithful with all that Jesus has called me to do? Without neglecting some things that Jesus has called me to do. So if you're if you're a father and you have a job, guess what? Jesus wants you to do both of those things. He doesn't want you to quit being a dad so that you can do a great job at work. I could do a better job at work if I didn't have to be a father. He doesn't want you to quit your job so that you can be the best dad in the world. He's actually calling you to do both of those things well. Now that's going to require some prioritization, isn't it? Like, I I think that being a dad is more important than my job, so I'm going to give it a little priority, but he wants me to do both. That's how God wants us to think about our callings. Caring for members of this church or your church, whatever it is, is one of your callings from Jesus. Which means on the one hand, God doesn't want you to quit your job so that you can care for members of the church. He doesn't want you to leave your spouse so that you have more time for the church. But on the other hand, he does want you to see that he's put you in a local body so that you could make one another holy. It's a calling and it's an important one. Listen to Galatians 6.10. It says it this way. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. So there's, Jesus is telling you, do good. That's my calling for you. Do good to everyone. But then he gives a priority on how we think about doing good. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So God wants you to be accountable to a specific church, to specific members and leaders. He wants you to know it's not your only calling, but it's an important one. It's a significant one, that you love the other members of the church, that they love you. That's how Jesus plans to make you holy and happy. Now, I partly want to tell some of you this to free you, to free you. Sometimes you feel just guilty, like, ah, what did I do today? Well, I just... I spent time with a member of our church, but I got all these other things to do, and now I just feel guilty. Well, you shouldn't feel guilty for doing something that's at the very center of what Jesus loves. When you're caring for the church, you are connecting yourself, you are hitching yourself to one of the great cosmic purposes of history and the universe. So, don't stop evangelism. Don't stop caring for your wife and kids. Don't stop caring for your friends working hard at your job. But consider how you can love the church. It's a calling. Now, here's some application. Commit to being here when we gather for worship. So just think, okay, how how can I practically do this? But one way is just to commit to being here when we gather weekly. If God's made us one body together, we should gather regularly. Listen to Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So how do we stir each other up? Like I want to get better at loving people. I want to get better at doing good works. This passage says, meet together, get together. These other people in this room, they're going to help you do that. And you know what else they're going to help you do? According to these verses, they're going to help you persevere until the end. Do you want to make it trusting Jesus until the last day? I want you to. The author of Hebrews wants you to. You know one really significant way that he thinks you're going to make it to the end? Is if you commit yourself to gathering with people of God. We are. We are the means that Jesus uses to keep each other until that last day. So commit to being together Here's application number two. When you're here, be intentional to encourage other people who are here. Intentionality, you know what that means? It means doing something on purpose, just thinking about it. It's, it's half the battle. I remember walking in the woods with my dad. You don't know what woods are. We don't have them in this country. It's lots of trees, animals, life, green I remember walking in the woods with my dad when I was young. And we're walking together, and my dad's seeing everything. Like, there goes a deer. And I'm like, where? There goes a fox. What? Where? There's a possum. So I'm, I'm just walking along, you know, I'm thinking about girls or, you know, Nintendo. I don't know. The reason my dad saw everything is because he was intentional. He had his eyes open. That's what he was doing. He was there to see stuff. And so he did. And I did it. It's half the battle. We saw in Ephesians 4 that we grow when we all care for each other. I, one of my favorite things about Ephesians chapter 4 is that the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, they're not the ones doing ministry. Do you notice that? It says the saints are doing ministry. Those people just help them do it. We're all here to do ministry. That's what it's saying. When each part is working properly, it builds the body up in love. So just be intentional. If you show up thinking, okay, I just want to encourage someone today. I want to be on the lookout for how I can speak truth to someone, pray, to some, pray with somebody, care. It's half the battle. Be intentional to encourage others when you're here here's another application. When you do that, try, this is a hard one, try to intentionally cross social boundaries at church. Now, I I don't mean be inappropriate when I say cross social boundaries. Don't be inappropriate. What I mean is this. Because we come from so many different places, so many different backgrounds, we can feel like there are barriers between us and this other person. Like, I have no idea what your childhood was like. Sometimes when we talk, it's hard for us to really clearly understand each other. I don't like the food you like. There's all sorts of barriers there. If... As Ephesians 4 says, we as individuals grow in Christ as each part works. That means we need everyone else to mature. All the members need all the members. That's really significant. I mean, if we only clump up in our groups where we feel most comfortable, we are missing out on growing up into maturity in Christ. You individually are. You are. And the other members are as well. So make it a goal to cross some social barriers when you're here for your good and others. And here's the last one try and help believers who are not committed to a local church see that they need it. Help believers who are not committed to a local church see that they need the local church. I never want Redeemer Align to be this... We're going we're to advance the name of Redeemer Align. We're on a march. We're going to soak up every Christian along the way. That's not what we're doing. We really need to be convinced that the church, local churches are God's plan, Jesus Christ's plan for our good. That changes the way you talk to people, doesn't it? We're not saying that, that you need to help believers who are not committed to a local church see that they need Redeemer outline. That's not what we're saying. Help believers see they, know, they need the local church for their good, for their upbuilding, which means be persuasive and gentle and patient like Jesus. This is how God increases our life in his son. So as you prioritize these people, the people in this room, use wisdom, you've got other callings as well. But as you prioritize loving these people with truth and serving them in the ways that God has gifted you, he'll prepare you for glory. That's what Ephesians 5 says. He'll prepare you for glory. Now, this room is full of sinners. There is not a single strong person in this room. There's not a single person in this room who, if they really understood their needs, would not be crushed by them. And yet, this is how God intends to make you holy and splendid before him. So trust him. Follow him. This is his plan for your good. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to say again, thank you for coming for us Thank you for dying for us so that we could be forgiven. Have your righteousness counted to us to be able to approach the Father with confidence. Thank you for giving us other people. Thank you for the local church. Lord, I pray that you would work among us. That we would love one another. Jesus, you say this is how the world will know that we're your disciples. It's through the love we have for one another. In First John, you tell us that the way we will know that our love for you is sincere is by the way we love one another. So, would you, Father, help us, please help us by the Holy Spirit to love each other, to build one another up, to be willing to make the sacrifice of discomfort, to enter into somebody else's pain and temptation to help. Lord, would you give us grace to cross social barriers? to love others. And would you work among us to do what you've promised to do to build us up into your image and prepare us for glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.